good morning. Welcome to Renewal Church. Thank you for being here today. I am Jared Kirk, and I'm so pleased to have you. We are starting a brand new series about what we do as a church, and it came out of this place for us that um, we moved. Last week was our first week here. God provided this space for it. Let's hear it for air conditioning. Yes. And padded chairs. Yeah, I mean, come on. Does, it, does life get any better than that? And... Um, so we, we were going to be doing a, ser- a series on First Peter, looking at how these um, ancient biblical te- texts apply to our lives today and can change and transform the life that you live today. But I, I felt this sense that because so much was changing for us as a church, it was really important for us to go back to those unchanging things, non-negotiable things that just define who we are as a community. And so we, we put together this, this series called This Is What We Do. I don't know if it's a, a, exactly a value series. You won't find these written down anywhere. It's just just organizationally, just this is for us. Uh, we, will, we will live for these things. We will die for these things. This defines who we are. And the first thing we're talking about today is the gospel. Now, for me, this is, this is the bedrock of my life, not just for our church, but for me. I didn't grow up hearing the gospel, which is this, this good news, is this message about Jesus, and we'll unpack exactly what that is in just a second here. But I grew up in a home where religious things were never talked about. Maybe, maybe that was you. Maybe you grew up and your parents were, were kind of secular, or they, they kind of dragged you to a, a service that you didn't really understand, and then nothing was ever spoken about it again. My mom is Jewish. My dad is um, Protestantly irreligious, I like to say. You know, just sort of like vaguely Protestant. Like, it's like, what makes you vaguely Protestant? Like, just a dislike for the Pope and never going to church. That's the, that's the whole thing. And so, for me, when I heard the gospel message, it was transformative in my life. I mean, my, my, my teenage years, we were actually talking about this last night when we were watching the University of Miami uh, lose to... University of Florida. I went to Miami, and I still rep the team even when they get an absolute beat down, which is what happened last night. Um, but we were talking about, you know, what our teenage years were like and how Heather, I don't know that she was ever got in trouble once, my wife Heather, if she ever got in trouble once in her entire life. But for me, it was, um, it was partying on the weekends. It was ecstasy. It was alcohol. It was just as much trouble as I could find. I, I tried to find as much trouble as possible. And so my grades fell apart. My life started to fall apart. My relationship with my parents and my sister fell apart. And in the middle of that, my Jewish mom didn't know what to do with me. She had no idea how to fix the situation, so she brought me to church. And at church, uh, she was like, well, maybe they'll just, maybe he'll stop using drugs, because my mom's from Arkansas, so that's how she says it. And not only did I, you know, it wasn't just that I got off drugs, it was that uh, Jesus got a hold of my heart and it changed everything. And so the obvious stuff stopped, the drugs and the drinking, but also these really deep things in my soul changed where my relationship with my mom improved. And it, it took my mom and my sister another decade or two to kind of work through some of that stuff. But for me and my mom, things were just healed very, very quickly as God did a work in my soul. And the whole trajectory of my life changed from being a selfish, self-centered person to wondering and thinking how I could help other people. And so for me, it's just this bedrock of my life. And so when Heather and I moved here six years ago to start a church, for us, it was just like, yeah, I mean, there's nothing else for a church other than the gospel that you can build it on. There, there's, no other, there's no other foundation. It's, it's non-negotiable. And really, to be a Christian is to believe the gospel. Without the gospel, a church isn't a church. I mean, you can have a building, you can sing the songs, but without the gospel message, a church isn't a church. 
Without the gospel, a Christian isn't a Christian. I mean, you can wear a cross, you can get a a cross tattooed on you, but without the gospel, a Christian isn't a Christian. Without the gospel, your sins aren't forgiven. And so when you stand before God at the end of your life, because I believe everybody is gonna be held, is gonna have accountability from God for your life when you die, and everybody's gonna be crying at your funeral, but you're not gonna be there. You're gonna be standing before God, and it's not always, hey, doom and gloom. There's some people, the Bible says, God says, hey, great job great job. You were a great servant. You were a faithful servant. Way to go. You did it. You finished the race. And now there's rest and reward for you. And there's other people that instead of experiencing reward, experience regret. Without the gospel, your sins aren't forgiven. You're still stuck there. Without the gospel, heaven isn't your home. Your past is still your past. And there's no power for, power for deep and meaningful change in your life. Without the gospel, the gospel is it. It's everything, and it's everything to our church. So what is the gospel? We're gonna, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what is the gospel, but then I want to talk about ways that we can respond to the gospel. What does it call forth from you in your everyday life? And the reason we need to talk about that response is because the gospel is news. Now, gospel is a Greek word, so we've just kind of taken it from Greek, and we've stuck it in English, and we use it as gospel, but if you were to translate it, it's good news. So the gospel is news. It's a message about something. Now, when you go home tonight and you turn on the news, now I know nobody actually does that anymore, but say you were to turn on the news, you'd see a bunch of different kinds of stories, and a lot of them don't impact or affect your life at all. And you would watch, and there'd be some tragedy, and you'd think, well, that's really sad, but it doesn't affect me, thankfully. Or you would watch, and they would talk about, you know, they, they would talk about, you know, what the mayor's doing, and you're like, that's interesting, but it doesn't affect me. They talk about, you know, Jeff Bezos is breaking up with his wife, and you go, oh, juicy, but it doesn't affect me. And then the weather person comes on, and they give the weather report, and they say, tomorrow is going to be thunderstorms all day. So if in the morning you don't pick up an umbrella before you walk outside, If you don't respond to that news, you're going to hit up against reality hard. The gospel is news that affects your reality every day. It's not like a tragedy that happens uh, far off somewhere else. It is the weather report every day of your life. And if you don't don't live and respond to it, you're going to be smacked in the face with reality. The gospel is news that demands a response. Now, Um, I want to break the news down for us every day. What I want to do in this first section of the message, I want to get as clear as possible because I don't like fuzzy thinking, especially when it comes to something as important as the gospel. So what I want you to do is go ahead and take out your teaching notes. Now, we normally have programs, but the printing company who prints our program sent us a box um, with a thousand menus for Dirty Burger instead of our programs. (laughs) So we've just got the teaching notes today. Pull these out. <laughs> and it was a terrible menu, too. I'm telling you. But anyway. <laughs> Pull this out. Write some things down. Let's get clear about the gospel. This news that God has, it is an announcement. It is a message that changes and affects your life every day. The reality around which you must wrap your life. What is the gospel? A, the gospel is a message about God. Write that down. The gospel is a message about God. It is first and foremost about him. And I don't, I don't know if you realize this. I've kind of picked this up somewhere along the way. But life, 
just not about us, right? It feels like we're the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. It's just not the way it is. But the truth is everything does revolve around God. God is the center of the universe. The way the Bible talks about that is that God is the creator. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, and then God spoke And the power of his word brought order out of chaos, out of nothing. There was light. There were the heavenly bodies. There was the earth. There were people. God speaks, and there's power in his speech as he brings forth things. God is the creator and the sustainer. Therefore, he is the center of everything. Every sunset you see is... uh, It is showing you how beautiful God is and how beautiful he can be. Every time you see people and their creativity, you're, you're getting a picture of the creator. Um, this creation shows us God. Now, my son Jude is eight, and he and I have been watching Bob Ross videos lately. You guys know who Bob Ross is? Yeah, those of you who are still in school, you know, it's like, you know, maybe you know who Bob Ross is in an ironic way, but he used to actually just be a cool painter. And um, so me and Jude have been watching it, and so we've been trying to create our own Bob Ross masterpieces. I'm not going to lie. Like, you could actually tell it was a mountain, you know? It was like there was a point, there was some white. It was a mountain. And, you know, when you see a beautiful work of art like that, one of the things it makes you do is appreciate the artist who created it. You think, like, that's incredible. Who made that? That's what creation is supposed to do. The gospel is a message that says God is the creator. It also teaches us that God loves the people he has made. Here's maybe the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Circle the word loved. Don't skip that part. God loves people. I mean, it's just who he is. The Bible actually says God is love, that it's in his nature to be love and to be loving. God loves you because he made you. Like, the Bible's always talking about how God is, like a, God is like a father. He loves his kids. He loves you. He made you on purpose. He thought you up before the world was made, before your, your mother and your father had even a thought that you were coming into this world. God knew what color hair you would have, what color eyes you would have, how tall you would be. Now, I know some of you feel like God made a mistake in assigning you your height, but God planned you. He made you. There are, um, there are sometimes we say that, that a child was an accident. That's never actually true because there are no accidents to God. God created you. He loves the people that he has made. So the gospel is a message about God. It shows us who he is and what he's like. But B, the gospel is also a message about humanity, Humanity. It tells us and explains the fundamental problems of our world, and it uses the concept of sin to do that. Now, if you're a more secular person and you're not particularly religious or you didn't grow up in church, that may strike you as odd. Sin is an unbelievably helpful concept for explaining why humans do the things that they do or why the world is the way that it is because it, 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 it contains this moral imperative to it that there are not just things that are, but there are things that ought to be. And they're not just things that are in your life, but there are things that ought to be in your life. And And so the Bible often describes sin as falling short of a standard. And so there are things that ought to be in all of our lives, and we know that, and we we get that, and we're like, yeah, the way that Jared Kirk should live is like this, but the way that Jared Kirk actually lives is like, there's there's falling short of the standard. Romans 3.23 says it so succinctly, all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as Christians, we believe that sin entered the human race through Adam and Eve. And you may say, like, well, I don't know about Adam and Eve. I don't know about that. But we can acknowledge that it's not just their sin that every single one of us has carried on this incredible tradition that human beings have of being horrible, rotten sinners and making their lives worse than it has to be and generally blowing up other people's lives and making marriages horrible and being overly uh, controlling with our children. And there's just like a million ways that human beings can go wrong, and every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here's how this relates to the grand story of, that God's telling with our creator Isaiah 59, it says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Sin has separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin causes relational separation. And you know this because if you sin against a friend... It causes a relational break. If you sin against your parents, it causes a relational break, and there has to be some sort of restoration or reconciliation to come back together. I once, um, when I was a teenager, I backed my mom's car out of the driveway into my dad's car. And then I drove away and didn't tell him about it because I was in a hurry. No, it's because I was a horrible kid. I already told you I was a bad kid, right? And so I just drove away, and then later I was like, I'm not going to get away with this, so I had to call him and tell him, okay? But so... I sinned against my parents, but it wasn't just like, so my mom wasn't just like, oh, that's interesting. Please pay us the money to repair the damage to the car. No, there's like this whole like relational issue that happened because of that, right? Because we know that sin causes relational separation. Now think about this. Your sin has caused a relational separation between you and your heavenly father. And so God had this problem on his hands that he's got kids that are separated from, the, from them because of his behavior, but he wants a relationship with his kids. God wants you back. And that's what Jesus is all about. God loves you so deeply. He wants to know and love and have this great relationship with his kids, but he's lost them. They've run off. They've rebelled. They've ran away. They're doing their own thing, and God wants you back. And that's why, see, the gospel is also a message about Jesus. Because God had a problem. He wanted his kids back. The Bible says that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. Most people don't have a problem believing that Jesus was fully human today. John 1.1 in the Bible talks about how Jesus was fully divine, uh, calling Jesus the word. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus as both fully human and fully divine. This is not something that was invented in the Gospel of John. This is something that shows up in the Synoptic Gospels as well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus has a self-identity that he is a divine being, and it's why people are trying to kill him in the Synoptic Gospels. And so he would say something crazy, like before Father Abraham was born, you know, Abraham was a couple thousand years before Jesus. He goes, before Abraham was born, I existed. It's like Jesus had this self-understanding that he was a divine being, which is why all the Pharisees picked up rocks to try to kill him. You know, that doesn't mean anything today. If you go, hey, before President Washington was born, I am. People would be like, okay, good for you. You know, make sure you sleep in a padded room tonight. But in Jesus' day, they knew what he was saying. He's saying, I'm God. And so they picked up rocks to try to kill him because that was blasphemy to them. Okay. So Jesus was fully God and fully human. Why does that matter? Well, because Jesus' sacrifice, which we're coming to in a second here, is supposed to cover the sins of the entire world. Now, if I said, you know, um, Adri, 
you know, you're going to have to die for somebody's sins today. So could you die, please die for the sins of everyone in this room? Sorry to pick you out. That's a bum, you know, assignment for you. You know, would you please die for the sins of everyone in this room? He's like, no, I can't. Like, everyone's responsible for their own stuff here. If I just said, like, hey, you know, Dusty, could I send you to jail for the crimes everyone in here has committed? It's like, that's not how this works. You know, it, it, for us as ordinary humans, you got to pay for your own stuff. But because Jesus was fully human and fully God, his sacrifice can cover Everyone, according to the Bible, he lived a perfect life. He, he did not sin once, which I think is actually the best explanation we have for why the, James, the brother of Jesus, came to believe that his own brother was the sinless son of God who died for the sins of the world. Like, what would you have to do to convince your brother that you were the sinless son of God? But James believed in his brother Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He died as a perfect sacrifice, and he rose from the dead. Now, this is in the Bible. Let me show you where it is, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Um, this is a, a summary of the gospel after Jesus' life and death. It says, what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. So it's like, hey, guys, listen, this is the most important thing when it comes to this whole Jesus thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So when he died, it wasn't for his sins. He didn't have any sins. He was dying for our sins that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He died as a sacrifice, he was buried, he rose from the dead. He beat death. He beat death. Now think about how crazy that is for a second, right? Because, you know, so far it's been about death nine billion, humanity zero when it comes to this battle. Not one person. So if that's the actual number, death nine billion, humanity zero, then there's no hope. Then death always wins. But if the score is 8,999,999,999 to 1. That means death can be defeated. In fact, because of what the scriptures say, we know that death was defeated by Jesus. That's the whole point of him rising from the dead. He has the power of life in himself, and he can give the power of life to you. That's eternal life. You can beat death through Jesus Christ You can be reconciled with your father. And so according to the Bible, Jesus is both Savior and Lord, 2 Peter 3.18. I just wanted to show you this this construction of language. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here's a pro tip for you. When you read your Bible and it says the word Lord in the New Testament, it doesn't mean God generally. It almost always means Jesus specifically. And what it means is that Jesus is the king, he's the ruler, he's the boss, he's the CEO, he's the absolute commander, he is the dictator. Jesus is in charge of this whole world. Satan is no longer in charge of this world, Jesus is in charge of this world. Death is no longer in charge, Jesus is in charge. Sin is no longer in charge, Jesus is in charge. And it goes forth like a message. Hey, listen everyone, Jesus is in charge. And you get to choose whether you live under the rule of the new, the new king or you say like, I'm gonna stick with the old king and see how that goes. This is, yeah, I'll skip that. Okay, it's about Robin Hood. I'll write a blog post on it this week. Download the app and you can read what I was gonna say. So Jesus is the Lord, he's in charge, he's also the Savior, okay? The Savior is referencing back to everything on the cross where he dies and he's buried and he's resurrected. It's about the forgiveness of your sins. So when the Bible talks about Jesus as both Lord and Savior, it's saying he is the one who is absolutely in charge and he's the one that will forgive you of your sins. How cool is that? 
I mean, that is relationship with the God who created you, who's beyond our understanding, but loves you so much that he writes a book and he sends these prophets so you can know who he is. And he says, and I want to love you as my kids because we're going to have a family reunion. It's going to be the best party you've ever been a part of in your entire life. I've got meaning and purpose for your life, for forgiveness for your past, the power to change today, eternal inheritance in the future. And you can choose whether to live in line with this reality or you can do something else. That's God's offer to you. Thanks, Ken. Give me, give me some more of that. Come on. You guys, Ken gets really worked up. Let him have it. It's good for his soul. <laughs> you get to choose. That's how, that's how the gospel is news. This is just what is. And you can choose whether to align your life around that or do something else. But just like the weather report, if you get it wrong, you are going to bump up against reality. As sure as that if you stick your, fire, your hand into the oven, it's going to be hot. There's just a reality to it, and that's what's happening with this gospel message. God wanted his kids back, so he sent Jesus. Finally, D, the gospel is a message about salvation. Salvation. You know, a lot of times we teach about how the gospel helps you in your relationships. It does. We teach about how the Bible helps you make wisdom for everyday decisions. It does. But at its absolute core, this is a message about eternal things, about spiritual things, about an inheritance in heaven, about forgiveness for your sins, about a relationship with this creator God. It is inherently um, metaphysical. It is inherently spiritual. The gospel is a message about salvation. And, And in order to take hold of these great and precious promises that God wants to forgive you and give you a hope and a future. You have to, well, let me read Acts 2.38. It will explain much better than me. Uh, Peter is about to give the very first sermon ever in the early church. And it's a bomb sermon because at the end of it, people are like, what do we have to do to be saved? And I've never had that happen to me as a preacher where I get like three quarters of the way through and people are like, excuse me, what do I have to do to be saved? But Peter is a better preacher than I am. It's clear. He's... Peter. So at the end of it, they say, what do we have to do to be saved? And then here, 238, Peter replies, repent, which means turn from your sins and follow after Jesus. So uh, stop sinning, choose faith, and be baptized. Because in the Bible, if you want to declare, like, I'm turning from my sin to follow Jesus, um, there were no connection cards in the early church. Now, those are good. We use those. I want you to use it today. It's important because we need to get you some info and some resources. Um, there was no connection cards. There, there, I, I, there were, I don't think there were ever any altar calls in the Bible. I'm trying to remember. It's like not coming back to me. I don't even, th- there was no organs, so there's probably no, no altar calls. You can't do an altar call without an organ. Um, instead, they would say like, if you want to declare that you are turning from your sin to follow Jesus, be baptized. That's what baptism is. It is how you tell the world, I'm turning from my sin to follow Jesus. So Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift God gives you to help you live like Jesus, to help you love God, to pray for you, to give you gifts. That's the Holy Spirit. And so anyone who turns to God by turning from their sin and placing their faith in Jesus and showing it through baptism can be saved. You can have the power to change today by the gift of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness for your past, all of it wiped away. Those things you wish you had never done, the things you wish had never been done to you, the things you wish no one would ever do, wiped away, and a future inheritance with God if you turn from your sins to follow Jesus. That's the gospel. And you see, you see how the ark moves? God gets his kids back. And so in eternity, 
in eternity with God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you have a relationship with the Father, and because God is Father, we're a family. So you, you spend eternity with the family of God and God the Father, worshiping him, glorifying him. God has good work for you to do. He has a place for you to live. He's prepared a place for you. Now, that is the gospel. The rest of our time today is all taken up with how you respond to that incredible news. Are you going to grab the umbrella on the way out the door, or are you just going to ignore it and just kind of go on with your life? Because not responding to it is a response. Not responding to the message is a rejection of, of Jesus Christ and all of his claims. And so there's no fence sitting in the Christian life. And there's, there's, you have to get this idea out of your head that, like, I'm going to have my fun now, and then I'm going get, get, to get to the place later, and then I'll settle down and I'll follow Jesus. Like, human beings don't work like that spiritually. Have you ever noticed that when you sin a little bit, you start sinning a little more, and you're like, I'm just going to do it in moderation, and then all of a sudden you're addicted to whatever it is that's bad for you? That's just how human beings work. So the Bible talks a lot about today being the day of salvation, today being the day of God's favor to your, for your life, today being the day of decision for you. You have to decide how you're going to respond to this. Now, the overarching rubric for our response is gratitude to God because God did all this. He made us. He created us, he put us in the garden, he, made, he sent Jesus, he, he gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us the help we need to turn from our sins and trust in Christ. We need to respond with gratitude. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, so that covers it all, doesn't it? Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Underline that phrase, giving thanks, in your notes right there. Think about the power of this for a second. We're talking about an entire life not motivated by fear or guilt, but by gratitude. So some of you grew up in a religious system in which the only way to motivate people to do things was shame, fear, or guilt. But when the gospel is the bedrock foundation of your life and this church, what motivates us forward is never shame, guilt, or fear, but always faith and gratitude and thankfulness to God. That's a totally different life. That is a totally different life. There is power in that thought. Gratitude. So for the rest of our time today, I said I was going to um, share with you how we can respond to gratitude with gratitude to God. Because what is our response to the gospel? It's like, how do you grab the umbrella and walk out the door? And I've got four things, five things, I want to share with you. And here's the first one. To respond with gratitude to God, I receive the gospel. Now, you see why this comes next. I receive the gospel. When I got married, um, when I got married, uh, some friends of my parents named Debbie and Jim, you know, they're, they're the kind of people that you call aunt and uncle, but they're not really your aunt and uncle. You know who they are? They gave us a picture frame. And um, Uncle Jim, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. It was a really ugly picture frame. So we didn't open the picture frame for like years. And then we were getting ready to move and we were clearing out stuff. And we opened the box just to look through it. And I opened the back of the picture frame. This is a couple years after our wedding. And there was a check in there. I think it was for 100 bucks. I never opened the gift. I never received the gift, and so I missed out on what they had for me. And you know what you, know what, you, know what you do next. You, you cash it, and you see if there's still 100 bucks in their account. No, like, you can't cash it, right? Like, so you just missed out on it. The gospel is a gift that God gives to you that you have to receive by faith. And if you don't open the gift, it's like having a Christmas present that you never unwrap. Like, what's the point? 
You have to take hold of it for yourself. 1 Corinthians 15.1 talks about this idea of receiving it. It says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. The gospel is a message that's proclaimed that you have to choose to receive. There's, other, there's another way that the Bible talks about this. Um, they talk about accepting the Bible. It says, Galatians 1.9, As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. The gospel is a message you need to receive into your life. You need to accept. Now, I want to invite the band to come back up at this time because in just a minute, I'm gonna, the band's going to play a song in the middle of a message before I come back up, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive or accept this message. And I really believe this, that God has brought some of you here today for a divine appointment that is not going to just change your day or your week, but your eternity. So instead of an eternity separated from God, you're headed towards an eternity in God's presence, God the Father reunited with his kids. And I'm going to give you a chance to receive that as the band plays. Now, in your notes, I want you to look at Galatians 1.9 and circle that word accepted. In Greek, that word means to receive something with your mind. When your teacher told you when you were a little kid, two plus two equals four, you had to receive it as true. When your high school teacher told you water is made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atoms, it's something you have to receive as true. It's the same thing with the gospel. You have to receive it as true with your mind. The Bible talks in other places about welcoming the gospel into your life. It talks about believing the gospel, and it's all shades of this same thing. You have to decide whether you will step out in faith and say, I will live in light of this reality. This will be true, not just true, but it will be true in my life, and I will live in alignment with Jesus as the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. And if you can say that in faith, then God will save you and bring you to heaven so it will be your eternal home. So as the band plays, I want to invite you to take this time to receive it into your life. I'm going to pray a prayer. And then this song, which proclaims the gospel really clearly, I want to invite you to sing it, whether it's your first time singing this or your hundredth time singing this to receive the gospel as your own. So why don't you pray with me and then we'll sing together. And as we begin to pray, I want to invite you if the Holy Spirit is moving in your life and God is drawing you to himself, not to ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you need to make this prayer your prayer today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for making me. Thank you for thinking me up before I was even conceived. Please forgive me for the sin that has made wreck and ruin of my life. I believe that Jesus is the forgiver that you've given me and the leader you want me to follow. And I don't understand everything about it, but today as much of myself as I can offer, I give to you and say, I need his forgiveness and I want to follow his lead. Would you please bring me safely home to heaven and give me the gift of the Holy Spirit that I could walk in a way that is pleasing to you. God, now... I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. Amen. I hope that for some of you here today, that was a chance for you to receive Christ. And I do want to invite you. Um, on the back of the connection card, there's a box that says, 
I want to receive the gospel about Jesus Christ. And you can check the box if that's a first-time decision for you. But I hope you'll do that today and drop it in the offering basket. If you do that, um, I want to just send you some resources in the mail and some email resources to help you get started. But the gospel is a message that you not only receive one time into your life, it's a message that you have to walk in response to every day. And that's what the rest of this message is about today. Responding to God in gratitude for the gospel is not something you do just to become a Christian. It's something that defines who you are as a follower of Jesus. So if the first way to respond to gratitude is to receive the gospel, the second way we respond is by walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Go ahead and write that down in your notes. To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, there's hundreds of stories and movies about people who um, fall in love with someone only to learn later that that person is royalty, like a prince or something like that. I think uh, The Princess and the Frog works like that. The modern version of this story is actually Crazy Rich Asians, where it's like, oh, we're in love. And, I, oh, I didn't know you're the richest person in the world. That's so crazy. Um, so that story has been told a million times. I like the flip of that story. Now, don't judge me. You can judge me a little, but don't judge me too much. In 2004, the movie The Princess Diaries came out, and it was flipped upside down because uh, she didn't know that she was actually royalty. And so she, as she's a teenager, and all of a sudden, by the way, here's your real identity that you didn't know about until now. Uh, you're royalty. Now you have to learn to live like that hilarity ensues, right? That's how, that's how the Princess Diaries works. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but th- there's something actually about being a Christian that's a lot like that, where you wake up one day and you say, I have this other identity that's given to me by the gospel, and I have to learn how to live like that. You know, when the Bible talks about being born again, it's not talking about having a religious experience. You know, that, that, that's not what Jesus was talking about. They were, that was a culture in which your entire identity was gifted to you when you were born, because your, um, your status in life was determined by your birth. Your work that you would do was determined by your birth. You just did what your father did or what your mother did. Your family was determined. Your clan alliances were determined. Everything was determined by your birth. And Jesus says, you actually need to be born again. You need a whole new identity that's given to you that's not natural. It's spiritual. And you're going to have to spend the rest of your life learning how to live out this spiritual identity, not just this natural identity that you were given. You've got to figure out how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's how the Bible talks about it. So our memory verse for today is Philippians 1.27, and that's another thing you can check on the connection card. If you do that, we'll send you something in the mail to help you memorize the verse. But what it says is, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel. You've been given this incredible identity. You are a son or daughter of God. Now you have to figure out how to live like that. Galatians 2.14 gives us another example of this idea that's in the New Testament. Um, it's, a, it's a conflict that Paul and Peter had in the early church. And Paul says this, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now underline that phrase because that's the key for us, acting in line with the truth of the gospel. There's a, there's, a, there's a straight line for the gospel and you don't want your life to deviate to the left or to the right. The Bible is always talking about in the wisdom literature, don't turn to the left or the right. I mean, you know that, guys, when you're walking through an airport, don't turn to the left or the right. That's, that's only trouble that comes that way. You have to act in line with it. Paul says, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Well, what's happening is really simple here. Um, Peter is living out some 
some of his old identity as a Jew instead of his new identity in the gospel. And so he was living out old ethnic and religious prejudices where you couldn't eat with certain people from a certain people group. And Paul says, listen, those old ethnic and religious prejudices are not in line with the truth of the gospel. So there's a different way that you have to live. And I don't know what that is for you, but I bet there are some things in your family's history and past that are uh, culturally acceptable, but they're not in line with the truth of the gospel message. And it might be your family's view on success. It might be your family's view on money or your family's view of sex. But there are things that we inherit naturally, but they're not in line with our new spiritual identity, walking in line with the gospel. If you've been saved by grace, you've got to live by grace, and you've got to throw off everything else that is weighing you down and entangling you from in line with the gospel. Okay. That was number two, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Number three, we respond to God with gratitude when we suffer for the gospel. You know, I wish this one wasn't in here. Because if I was writing this message, I wouldn't put this in here. But when you study the way that people respond to the gospel in the New Testament, this is in there. And it's in there more than we would like it to be. The Bible often speaks about suffering for the sake of Jesus Jesus himself talked about it. He experienced it. He said his followers will experience it. 2 Timothy 1.8 says it like this. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, join with me. He's like, come on in. The suffering's fine. You know, come on, join me in this. And, you know... I think that is so countercultural, you wonder what on earth could make people act and think this way. But I like to think about it this way there is going to be plenty of suffering in your life, it's guaranteed. You'll experience loss, grief, cancer, loneliness, it might be mental illness, miscarriage, or a thousand other calamities that plague the human race. And you usually don't get to choose the suffering in your life. Most of those things are types of suffering you don't get to choose. But the gospel is the kind of suffering you choose because there's greater joy on the other side. This is the kind of suffering where women choose to have children And they go through the painful process of childbirth. They choose it because of the joy that's on the other side. It's why athletes will train physically for hours and hours and hours every day for the hope of a few moments of glory on the other side of it. It's also why people fall in love. If you love, you have chosen to open yourself up to suffering. That's for dang sure. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship before. This kind of suffering is also why people choose to suffer for the gospel. The gospel is the hope of eternal life. It's the hope of eternal glory and honor. It's the hope of eternal rest. It's the hope of eternal security. And so it's no wonder that if you, if you, if you see it for the treasure that it is, there's no doubt of why it's worth suffering, why it's worth choosing to take on that suffering now for the sake of that joy later. And on top of that, according to the Bible, God will use your suffering to accomplish more through your suffering than he ever could through your power or your strength or your intelligence or your intellect. Look at Philippians 1, 12 through 13. Now, this is 
So countercultural. I'm sorry, let me say this before we get to Philippians. Because in our society, it is all about your strength and your skill, especially in Boston, right? It's like we, in our church, we will have people who are the smartest people in the entire world. It's just part of Boston. That doesn't mean they're the wisest people in the entire world, right? But they're the smartest people in the entire world. And we're so fixated on what can make you successful and, and what makes you climb the ladder and those kinds of things. But spiritually, God will, use, will do more through your suffering than he will through your mind. Now let's look at Philippians 1, 12 through 13. This is Paul who's suffering in prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being thrown in prison has actually served to advance the gospel. Circle advance the gospel. And as a result, so in other words, me being thrown in prison, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. God used his suffering more than his preaching to draw people toward the truth of the message about Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that the, that the same could be true in your life. And I'm not wishing that on you. As a pastor, I'm just trying to prepare you for that possibility in your life. So prepare yourself to suffer for the gospel and to face it like a man or a woman when the time comes to suffer for it. Number four, we respond to God with gratitude when we hold fast to the gospel. The gospel is something you've got to hold on to, but it's not like trying, it's not like, you know when you're like getting off the train and you're like trying to check your phone at the same time and you, you're, this thought goes through your mind, like I'm gonna drop my phone in the crack and so you get this death grip on your phone. That's not how you hold on to the gospel. You hold on to the gospel like you've fallen off a cliff and you're hanging on to a branch because if you let go, you lose everything, you're lost. That's how you hold on to the gospel. If you don't hold on, you'll lose your soul. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Let me show you where this comes from. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The kind of belief that's like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting, that sounds nice, and then something difficult happens and you just let go because you don't want to face any bad consequences, that is not, I mean, it, it says that, that's believing in vain. That's not the kind of faith that saves you. It does no good to believe a little bit now, but then forget about it later. The gospel is something you've got to get a death, a death grip on, like if I let go of this, I'm going to die. Colossians 1, through 23 talks about Holding on, it says, now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. You hear that? Those echoes of holding fast, standing firm, being established and firm. Most people let go of the gospel and they trade it for some, some cheap substitute. They'll trade it for religious rules. And they'll let go of the gospel and they'll trade it for the philosophies of this world. You know, that's what happened to two prominent Christian leaders over the last just couple weeks now. You know, some of you, if you're, if you're Christians and you're in probably on your news feed, you may have seen that there was a couple of people who uh, were major authors and leaders in Christianity. And then they publicly renounced their faith. Now, if you didn't see that in the last couple of weeks, you will see this or you have seen it. And so 
what I wanted to say about holding fast to the gospel in light of that is I think there's two things that we should take away from this when people walk away from the faith. First of all, we shouldn't put our hope in human teachers, but only in Christ. Human teachers are helpful, but they ain't Jesus. And if you guys could see the way that I talk to my kids sometimes, then you would know. Like when you see teachers and you see people that are like, um, they, they, they speak publicly about Jesus, right? You actually have no idea how spiritual they are. You don't know how spiritual I am. You have no idea. If you really want to know how, pe- how spiritual somebody is, you need to see how they talk to their family. You need to see how they spend their money and what they do with their free time. You would have a much better idea of whether they're a spiritual person, but their ability to speak publicly has no bearing on, what, on whether they're a spiritual person or not. So we can't be putting our faith and our hope in human teachers, but only in Christ. And we thank God for human teachers insofar as they're helpful for us in our faith, but they ain't God, and we shouldn't act like it. But here's the second thing we take away when public figures fall away from the faith, is we should, as the Bible might put it, take heed lest we too should fall. Are we better than them? Are we somehow different than them? Are we somehow more firm and steadfast than they are? Are we stronger than they were? No, it is only by, hit, by God's help and grace that we've come this far. And so it should serve as a warning for us to examine our own lives that we are in the faith and that we are trusting deeply in him. And it should kill that sort of spiritual apathy where your, your life is on autopilot and an auto drive. You're, you're, you're in spiritually neutral. You know, guys, this world, <laughs> this world is not a downhill slope to heaven. This, this world is a downhill slope to hell. And so if you are in spiritually neutral, you are not coasting towards heaven. So you should take heed. We all should, lest we fall. So we hold fast to the gospel. And here's the final way. Number five, that we respond in gratitude to God. We share the gospel. I mean, this is everywhere in the New Testament. We, I did a study on how people respond to the gospel. This was the overwhelming thing. The number one thing you do with the gospel in the Bible is to proclaim it or preach it. Preach it means proclaim it. In other words, you got to get the message out there. And Jesus said, this is what we would do as his followers. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's like, who's going to do it? Is that the pastor's job? It's not Jesus' job. Is it the apostles' job? They lived for about 70, 80, 90 years. No, it's our job to proclaim this. And there's nothing in heaven or on earth that should ever stop us from proclaiming this message. In the early church, when Paul was arrested and put into chains, we saw that a few minutes ago, the result of that, you'll see here, is that everyday ordinary believers shared the gospel even more. Here's here's Paul talking about being in prison. He says, because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So who's doing the proclamation here when Paul goes to prison? The brothers and sisters. It's just the church. It's the, or it's the church members. It's not, he's not talking about the church leaders. And I think about the logic there of how powerfully God works through suffering there too because the logic is, hey, listen, the church, the, the pastor of the church, the guy who's in charge went to jail. Great, let's go preach the gospel. <laughs> you see, I think the reason that was happening was because God was so powerfully using the suffering and testimony of those people to draw people to the Lord so they could see even though there was suffering, there was good that could come. So we have to share and proclaim the gospel. And I hope that you will proclaim that verbally. 
But I also know this, that some of you don't feel confident just laying out the gospel message with a friend. Um, it's, it's a challenge for you. And I, I think as a Christian, that's one of the things you're supposed to aspire, you're supposed to grow into that, to share about Jesus with others. But I do think that there's a way that every person can help participate in other people encountering Jesus. And we do that through community groups, right? Like you may not be able to stand on stage and proclaim, or you may not even feel comfortable sitting down at a bar and proclaiming, but I hope that you could open your home to some other people and do a study called 40 Days with Jesus. We're doing a spiritual growth campaign that starts in several weeks, and we're recruiting host homes for it right now. And a host is four things, H-O-S-T. You have to have a heart for people, be willing to open your home, serve some snacks, and turn on the TV. And if you can do that, you can host a group, and we'll give you the resources and the training that you guys need to get ready for that. And um, if, if, you know, we're, our goal is to have 10 groups. And so you can invite people into your home, push play on the, we'll, we'll stream it. You push play and have a conversation about Jesus with people in your life. They don't have to be a part of this church. They should be people that you just know from your life. If you're open to hosting, I hope that you'll check the box on the connection card. Um, it's just request, you're not signing up for it, you're just requesting information on it so that you can make an informed decision before you commit. But I really believe this. God is going to use some of you who, who thought, you never thought you could be a group leader. You never thought you would have people in your home talking about Jesus. And he's going to use some of you to help your friends and family and coworkers hear about Jesus. So I hope you'll pray about that. So we share about Jesus. You know, as we, as we close here today, I want to invite the band to come back up one last time. And I just want to reaffirm this, that the gospel is the foundation of this church, and we will not compromise on that, because there's no other name under heaven by which men and women might be saved than Jesus Christ. And so that is who we are. That's who I am as a pastor. That's who I am committed to lead this church to be, and I hope it is, as a church, what you will build your life on as well. And as you respond to the gospel, I believe God will give you the grace and the help you need to do it well.